This is Bach Talk. The San Francisco Chronicle praised her as an excellent and impassioned soprano, possessing a graceful tonal clarity that is a wonder to hear. Her name is Michelle Kennedy. She first appeared in St. Louis with the Vox Society in 2019. She is a versatile artist, to be sure, specializing in both early and new music. She's a delight to be around, as you're about to discover. You're hearing that virtuosic soprano aria from Handel's quintessential oratorio, Messiah. Rejoice greatly. It's an apropos way to describe Michelle's approach to life. We talked with her when she was here for that performance with the Vox Society in March of 2023. Hello, I'm Ron Clem. Welcome to Bach Talk. A lot has happened in Michelle's life since then. In the fall, Aces Productions released her first solo album with Agave Baroque, titled In Her Hands, a fascinating collection of music by female composers, past and present. She talked about it, pre-release, in our conversation. And just recently, it was announced that she won the coveted 2023 American Prize for vocal performance. She mentioned in a recent email that she was totally surprised by the news. Me? Not so much. Because Michelle Kennedy has already demonstrated to St. Louis audiences the passion and grace that has impressed so many. We chatted with Michelle in the Versailles room at the Hilton St. Louis Frontenac Hotel. A self-proclaimed shy person, I found her perceptive, well-balanced, profound and thoughtful about music, diversity in the arts, and life in general. We began our conversation by asking Michelle to describe life as a child in a contrastingly urban yet serene California setting. I grew up near the Big Lake in central Oakland, Lake Merritt, uh, in an area that was pretty wooded, and we were very near the Redwoods. And I have fond memories as a very, very shy little girl of going up to the Redwoods with my family and going on these little hikes, even as a very tiny person. I loved the majesty of the woods. I also loved being near the water. So we would go to the beach, we would go to the lake, and playing in those natural spaces made a big imprint on me as a kid, I would say. I was very shy. I Now that's hard to believe. <laughs> Is it really? <laughs> Well, my grandfather, my mother's father, used to play Bach every morning on the piano. He was an organist and a minister. And he noticed, even when I was very small, that I loved listening to him play. So when I was three years old, he offered to give us an upright Yamaha. And I started my piano lessons when I was still 
too little for my feet to even touch the ground. Sure. Um, and very, very shy. But I, I began with Suzuki at age three. And I still am so thankful for that method because I think particularly for introverted kids, it gives you this really vivid sensory impression of the keyboard, spatially, numerically, musically. And I just loved getting lost in that world. By the time I was seven or eight, my parents <laughs> had to encourage me to practice, not because I wouldn't sit at the keyboard, but because all I wanted to do was sing and not play. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. So some of those beginner tunes like Red River Valley and Don Anobi's Pacham, I would start playing, which is what I was supposed to be doing. But I just like singing them. So my parents, being wise people, thought, let's try out a choir. <laughs> And I joined the San Francisco Girls Chorus. Yes, not just any choir. Not just any choir. In fact, we we tried a few other area choirs, which my mom would say in her diplomatic way, we're not a great fit. <laughs> but the Girls Chorus was, and it stuck, and it became my second family as a kid. Ensemble. You, you learned early on what that meant and mm -hmm. what a group of people with the same goals, doing the same thing. Powerful stuff, isn't it? Very powerful. What is it about choirs that, that mm. make, give us this incredible bond? That's a wonderful question. I think it's a lot of things. I think one aspect of it is you learn how to calibrate your voice with others, which is to say you bring what you have to say in your own way, but it's in community. So there's a give and take. There's an innate um, power of listening, I think, that you learn on a lot of different levels of compromise, of discipline. <laughs> the girls' chorus has never been short on discipline. We, we rehearsed. Once I reached the uh, kind of pre-professional level, which was at age uh, 11 for me, uh, at least three afternoons a week. So four to six Tuesday, Thursday, Friday were always girls' chorus rehearsals. And then in concert weeks, there was more. So I think I just started to get it in my muscles that that's when we worked and that we worked to listen to one another, that we worked to achieve a high bar musically and that we sang in all these languages. And for me, as such a shy child, my parents would tell you that in my first few concerts, I was too shy to even look up at the conductor. Uh, Michelle, that's not a good thing. <laughs> promise me that you'll look up to Dennis. Uh, I promise. <laughs> I've learned. I've learned. I think actually this was a great thing about the girls' chorus because we rehearsed so often that I started to be at home with my craft and to trust that I had something important to offer. And it drew me a little bit over time out of my introversion such that I could learn to tell a story on the stage. Mm -hmm. you, you said your dad was a minister or your grandfather? Grandfather. Did you, did you have the church uh, music experience singing in church or, or not so much? Only a little bit, ah, actually. Interesting. My, my dad came up in the Baptist tradition in San Diego. My mom came up in the Presbyterian church. And they felt fairly strongly that they wanted their two daughters, myself and my sister Erin, to find our own way when it came to faith, which is to say to uh, approach the church when 
we wanted to. So I went, I went several times to different churches. I remember my family went a couple times to Lakeshore Avenue Baptist Church near Lake Merritt in Oakland, and it was this wonderfully diverse Baptist congregation, very of and for and about the community. And I loved that worship. I loved singing there. I loved hearing what everybody had to say. But I didn't attend church regularly until I was in college. Which was in? New Haven, Connecticut. At? I went to Yale University. Yes, and I joined the Choir of Christ Church in New Haven under the direction of one Robert Lehman. I've heard of him. <laughs> who, from day one, was so many different things in my life. He was a very powerful mentor musically. He was a friend to me and my family. And he remains a pillar in my life of, of mentorship and goodness and support. And uh, I just, I love his family. We would all have these uh, dinners after Evensong on Sunday, having had a very full day of work. <laughs> We'd go have some homemade deliciousness. Alison Lehman is just a fierce cook, a fierce everything. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific lady. And uh, I hold them very dear. And the Christchurch choir experience uh, really asked a lot of us musically. I think that the caliber of musicianship that Rob expected was extremely high. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the rigor of sight reading, especially um, harmonic nuance, rhythmic nuance, um, and versatility, uh, I learned so much in that job. It's a long way from Oakland, California to... <laughs> <laughs> New Haven, Connecticut, and Yale University. How did that come about? That's a good question. We looked at universities both on the West Coast and the East. My parents were very supportive, although I know, especially for my mom, 3,000 miles <laughs> felt like a long ways. <laughs> you think? <laughs> a long ways. But my grandfather, uh, my mom's dad, uh, got his doctorate in Chinese and in divinity at Yale. Oh. And... It was beloved in the family. I also had two good friends from the girls' chorus who were fellow alums. And when my mom and I came to tour, they took me around, and I just had this feeling about the place like, I love it here. <laughs> I love it here. Not just the Gothic architecture, but the ethos, the openness, the beauty of the place. Makes, makes a lot of sense. It sounds to me that uh, your parents uh, and family were not pushing you into any particular area, a little cubby hole or something like that, that you were able to find yourself. Is that fair? Mm, it is fair. Okay. It's, it's um, intuitive of you yeah. to say that. I think that um, openness was very important to both my parents, each in their own way, but they wanted their daughters to feel free and empowered in our choice making. I think I did feel spurred on <laughs> to practice. <laughs> My mother was very good at that, but um, definitely I, there was a lot of freedom of choice. So the moral of the story is encourage, uh, support, but don't don't be pushy. But don't be pushy. <laughs> I will say to your question one other thing, which is that uh, being that far away from home, I did miss it. I'll I did bet. miss it. I went back often, but the one thing I found in college was that. You know, here I am far from my family, far from my upbringing. The one constant is me. You know, the constant is 
the woman I'm becoming. And it, I think it invited more clarity. It asked more clarity of me in terms of what I wanted and where I was going. Who discovered your talent? Or put it this way, when did you come to the realization, oh, wow, I could actually do this for a living? No, it's a wonderful question. And I would say gradually. I think that for me, the mentors in my life have been huge, uh, especially since I was such a shy child and remain in a lot of ways a very introverted person. I think from my girls' chorus days, my uh, first voice teacher, Sarah Gans, still a very beloved friend of mine in San Francisco, she lived right near the Twin Peaks, and so we would drive seemingly straight uphill to get to her house for my lessons. And she was and remains a big cheerleader and friend of mine. I think also that um, all of my directors in the girls' chorus, especially Dr. Sharon Paul, who I sang under for all of middle school and high school, um, Susan McMain, who succeeded her, and, and now um, Valerie Santagat, the current director of the Girls' Chorus, they're all beloved friends and mentors of mine who I look up to tremendously. And I think in college and beyond that my voice teachers have been huge, huge for my sense of self, the scope of my dreams, the kind of tangible steps in daily practice that we need to pursue this as a career. But <laughs> that being said, Ron, it's a leap of faith every day. <laughs> Honestly. Nerves are a good thing, aren't they? They're they're motivators. <laughs> yes. That's soprano Michelle Kennedy. I'm Ron Clem, and this is Bach Talk. It's not uncommon for an organization to um, publish or put on their website a vision statement. It's not every day that an individual uh, s singer like you yourself would have a vision statement and publish it. I want to go through it step by step and, and give you a chance to just take a deep dive mm. into these things. You cool with that? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> to fuel artistic dialogue through a contemporary lens on historic practice. What does that mean? It means several things. One, I'm a Baroque specialist. I adore, as you know, the works of Handel and Bach in particular. And I think in revisiting those masterworks and those of their contemporaries, both very beloved and visible and lesser known, that a contemporary lens to me means how does this music live today? How does it resonate with us today? And also, how can it interface with more contemporary works on the stage? Whether that means juxtaposing period works with works of the 20th and 21st century, whether that means diversifying our canon, as we're called to so intensely today and every day, how do we facilitate a dialogue between the established masterpieces of the stage and those that deserve equal recognition but haven't yet received it. What does that conversation look like? So for me, when I say to fuel a contemporary lens on historic practice, I mean, well, let's look at this historic repertoire with a modern lens and ask ourselves, who's been included at the table? Who hasn't been included at the table? How can we forge a bridge between the two?
Who hasn't been included at the table? Well, in broad strokes, female composers, composers of color, uh, I think those who have been marginalized by less fortunate means. Um, through no fault of their own. Through no fault of their own, yeah. So I think that for me, um, there's a big calling, a growing calling in my career to be a leader when it comes to those conversations because they're not easy. They're not easy. We have to develop the vocabulary. We have to find the fluency. And there's no way but through that conversation. So that's what I really mean is I want to continue to bring these vaunted Baroque masterworks to the stage. I adore them with my entire soul. And what does it look like to really diversify the canon? How, how do we forge meaningful tissue between those, those two paths and, and include more people on the stage? And in a practical way, how are you doing that? Tell me a little bit about some of the, some of the gigs that, that have incorporated that type of approach. Mm, of course. Well, I am a member of the Kaleidoscope Vocal Ensemble, which is now, I believe, in its fourth season. <laughs> pandemic seasons included oh yeah wow. <laughs> oh my goodness so kaleidoscope is comprised of early music and i would say also contemporary music specialists um, primarily artists of color many of whom are known and beloved here at the box society of st louis and our mission is is twofold one to bring artistic excellence to the stage two to uh celebrate the voices of artists of color on the stage and in the field more broadly. So that means librettists, composers, artists, uh, voices of all kinds. How do we open the door more widely than it may have felt available to us? Mm -hmm. uh, number two, your vision statement. To work with living composers and writers. So who, what, obviously that, that really dovetails into what you just talked about. Mm -hmm. I love championing the works of female composers and writers in particular. Uh, I would say that the main vehicle for that right now is Lorelei Ensemble, uh, which I debuted with, which I was to have debuted with in 2020. <laughs> we all know what happened. I had a digital debut <laughs> with Lorelei Ensemble. And uh, I just love the clarity and boldness of Beth Willer's vision for that group. So we are currently working with Julia Wolf on a tour of her um, world premiere and sort of regional premiere, as it is, in collaboration with several symphony orchestras. It's a co-commission from Nashville Symphony, San Francisco, Boston, Chicago, and the National Symphony in D.C. And the piece is called? Her Story. It's a... I want to say a celebration of women's rights, but it's something deeper than a celebration. It's like a tour de force of the story of civil rights and the fight for women's equal rights in America. It, it uh, centers the voices of Abigail Adams and Sojourner Truth, speaking of Bridges' historic and contemporary, and it also interweaves... Um, derogatory terms that have been used to denigrate outspoken women of all kinds and stripes for generations. And it, I would say, through Julia Wolf's minimalist language, it kind of 
decimates their power and puts them back together again. And the whole piece feels to me like a reclamation of taking up space in a powerful way Mm. as a, a strong group of women. Fascinating. That is terrific. (laughs) Thank you. Can't wait to hear it. To bring more diverse voices and perspectives to the stage. Again, you kind of talked a little bit about that. What what does diversity look like in the performing arts? Maybe that's a bigger, broader question. It is a broader question. Um, Well, I think it can look a lot of different ways. I'll give a couple of examples in hopes that that vivifies the conversation, you know, for us and for the listeners. I think one way is through curating thoughtful programs that have connective human stuff as their medium. So, for example, I've worked on this program called Cultural Crossroads with a Bay Area-based group called the Gold Coast Chamber Players, also in collaboration with the Alexander String Quartet. And it is a dialogue about American music um, through the music of Dvorak, music of Harry Burley, and the music of R. Carlos Nakai. And the central, the foundation of the program is the friendship between Dvorak and Burley, which was very real and decades long, and both emotional and musical. So it's about the influence of Czech music on Dvorak, on various uh, black musical traditions that he interfaced with when he came to America, Native American music, um, and also the program centers not just Harry Burley's original compositions and spiritual arrangements, but also the original works of R. Carlos Nakai, wonderful flautist and composer. And it creates a conversation between those three strands, which is to say, what does it look like when our lens on American music brings together indigenous voices, black voices, Czech voices, all kinds of voices, but the connective tissue is those relationships. I think that's one way. I think another way is through the medium of art song, which is one of my favorites, recital work. So for example, I recently have done this um, recital sort of like a mini tour. I did a recital with Upper Philadelphia as part of their Sons of America program. And then I did a recital in um, San Francisco at St. Mary's Church. And they, they had some common threads, which were that they interwove different art song traditions and told the stories of the composers. So the Upper Philadelphia program very much highlighted the work of Margaret Bonds and Florence Price. So their personal stories were at the fore there. We also integrated some works by Tanya Leon, phenomenal living composer, Nkero Okoye, New York-based composer who is on the rise and for a wonderful reason. Mm. And the San Francisco recital also interwove works of um, Pauline Viardot, Mendelssohn, Faure, Bonds, and Price. And I do think that in in the recital medium, it's just so it's so personal because you're just up there with one voice and a few instruments. And I I find it personally important to talk a little bit about each of the composers in the recital context, just to vivify their work, who they were, yeah. how, how their music um, shows us more about their moment in history. And the last thing on your vision statement is to celebrate curiosity and joy in daily practice. That sounds like something we should all do. 
What makes you curious? What, what are you most curious cu about now? Oh, my. I think my sense of curiosity has no bounds. I, I do wonder, because I'm a new mother in this work. How new? 19 months. <laughs> and how's that going? Oh, my goodness. It's a wonder. It's is a, is it's... your mind wandering at this very moment? How's things going at home? Of it's course. okay to say yes. Right. Well, my, my daughter and my husband are always present in my mind and heart. And Audra May, is, she's a wonder. She's a delight. She is overflowing with curiosity and lightheartedness. And joy. And joy, which to me is kind of a revelation in the practice. Because I've always just been such a serious person. Anybody who's ever sat down with me. He would not be shocked by that. But I think that intensity and focus and discipline have always come naturally to me and been cultivated in my environments. But I think that to reclaim our sense of joy every day is not just an, an act of empowerment, but an act of reclamation of what it means to be alive, what it means to do this amazing art form to present it, to be on the stage, to share it with our audiences. It's it's a privilege. It's an honor. And I, I always do well to just have a smile and remember why I love it so much. That's the uh, reserved Michelle Kennedy. <laughs> I'm Ron Clem, and this is Bach Talk. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm, I get weary about talking about the pandemic. But a lot of things happened, not just technologically, uh, during that time. Tell me about what positives came out of that for you. I learned how to record myself at home. <laughs> well, I could have taught you that. <laughs> Let me tell you, Ron, it was a steep learning curve. <laughs> The microphones, the <laughs> backdrops, the lighting. If you have any problems, just give me a call. <laughs> I might dig you up on that. But I will say that I really learned how to do it. And I was very clumsy at first, and I got better. <laughs> that was one thing. I also, I started an indoor garden. And I uh, have more herbs growing at home than I ever had before. I think that was very comforting to me. I'll bet. To have just some living stuff. It's to life, care exactly. Of. It's life. And especially if you're in in your home month after month, it, there's a real risk of monotony. And I think that tending to growing things was a, a beautiful aspect of my life in the pandemic. I think the other big 
learning for me was um, taking myself back to school. All of these summer festivals, master classes went online. I took a, a Feldenkrais workshop that I never would have been able to go uh, to in person. A what? Feldenkrais. Uh, which, yeah, I've done more Alexander technique in my personal history as a singer and, you know, as an artist, but I wanted to learn more about Feldenkrais as a, as a movement philosophy. Um, and I loved this workshop and I still almost every day use things I learned from it. How about that? One of the things I noticed was that you, you step back and you realize what the important things in life are. Did you have that experience too over that mm -hmm. time? Yes. And what are those? The essentials, health, home, love, family. That was, I love that you brought that up because that, that was the deepest learning is, you know, what is the bedrock of my life? Is it the people I love most? the places that I hold dear, and my love of singing. I would go in our old apartment. We had this big laundry room in the basement with great acoustics, and it was almost always empty. <laughs> it looked out on a garden, and I would go there every day, whether or not I had a recording project. And I think it also infused in me the love of practice, because I thought, you know, we're really used to extrinsic motivators, right? Mm -hmm. Master classes, concerts. We don't have any of those. None. So what is my motivation? Do I still want to do this? I would ask myself. And I found that I would go down to our laundry room every day and kind of fall in love with the craft of singing just for its own sake. And that was a really wonderful thing. Then let me ask you this. If you couldn't sing anymore, what would you want to do in life? I think I would still want to mentor aspiring musicians, talk about what this career asks of us, talk about artistic mission and purpose. I also think I would focus on body work, yoga, Pilates, movement, particularly for young women. I think it's very freeing to learn psychosomatically, to learn and cultivate a sense of fully embodied presence in this world, um, in what you have to say, and to not make apology for your presence. And so I think I would want to work on that, that combination, mentorship and embodiment in daily practice. What's interesting is in the in the entirety of our conversation so far, something has not come up. You double majored as a as an undergrad in uh, music, but also in poli sci. Mm -hmm. um, so let me ask you this: I'll get you going. <laughs> if you were the mayor of Oakland or St. Louis or any major city, what would be on your agenda? What would be the first thing you'd want to try to do? Infuse a deeper connection between people and their environment. Uh, I think I would want to center environmental education much more, which is to say, what are our natural spaces? How do we celebrate them? How do we preserve them? I think I also would want to work on intercultural dialogue, intercultural spaces, 
creative spaces. I think that placemaking has everything to do with whether people feel they belong in a place or not. And so in a civic space, it's like, well, how do we help to galvanize and empower people, not just so that they vote, but so that they feel that they belong? And I think I would want to cultivate civic spaces, educational spaces, places of public gathering that feel safe, clean, like they celebrate the natural world and like they invite absolutely everyone to the table. Well, I'd vote for you. <laughs> uh, Oakland A's or San Francisco Giants? Oh, Oakland. Oakland all the way. Although I have to say I would go NBA. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm always, my dad cultivated in me a love of the NBA from girlhood. And I, so the Warriors, the Warriors. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll give you that. In St. Louis, we don't have a pro NBA team. So we, we, don't, we don't get that option. After a long rehearsal or a performance day, long day, you're tired, you get home, um, kick your shoes off. What do you do? What do you do to relax? What's the thing that relaxes Michelle Kennedy? I like to have a quiet snack with my husband, Benjamin. Shout out. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We like to have cereal. It's very glamorous. We like to have cereal. We like to have popcorn. Maybe watch a show, maybe just sit on the couch. I think I like stillness and quiet because my life has such an abundance of music that for me, unwinding is almost always quiet. And just a chance to kind of breathe and enjoy the peacefulness of our home space. That makes me happy. Gives you joy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we all know the uh, desert island question. Let me rephrase it for your context, okay? You you get to the pearly gates, and St. Peter greets you and welcome, Michelle. So thrilled you're here. But, you know, we've been talking to the cherubim and the seraphim, and they would like you to, to sing your way in. What's the piece you sing? I love from Cantata 151, I love that aria. That's a candidate. I will tell you that also the, the Poulenc Gloria, which I was so honored to sing with the Box Society of St. Louis in 2019, is one of my favorite pieces in the universe. And if I could sing one of those arias, I would. <laughs> well, I, I, I can't wait. <laughs> oh, although we will wait. Right, hopefully we I've have, got a few, a few years yet. <laughs> got other things to do in the meantime <laughs> thank you so much for spending time with us you are a joy to be with thank you ron it's rejoice been a total greatly pleasure. how about that uh, absolutely every day
just the final portion of Domini Deus Rex Celestis from The Gloria by Francis Poulenc in a performance by the Bach Society of St. Louis in December 2019 at Powell Hall. The soloist, soprano Michelle Kennedy, in her first appearance with the Bach Society. Musical portions today featured Michelle with the Bach Society Orchestra and Chorus, conducted by music director and conductor A. Dennis Sparger. Be sure to check out Michelle Kennedy's new recording, In Her Hands, with the Agave Ensemble, available from ASIS Productions. For more information, visit agavemusic.org. Guests of the Bach Society stay at the Hilton St. Louis Frontenac Hotel, featuring old-world charm at the intersection of comfort and convenience. Subscribe to Bach Talk wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more at bachsociety.org. Marketing and technical assistance provided by Andy Murphy and Carissa Marciniak of Right Relations. Bach Talk is a trademark of the Bach Society of St. Louis. I'm Ron Clem. <laughs>